0: Father God, uh, we've lifted uh, our hearts and our testimonies to you in, in praise. Uh, we pray that uh, it would be a pathway that you would now uh, send to us, the empowerment that we need to live a week of purpose, of ministry, of, uh, of suitable Blue Water Adventure. Um. We pray for your presence uh, in this place and, and that by your presence you would make it holy. Um, we are not here by accident, Lord. Uh, we are here by faith. In Jesus' name, everybody says, amen. All right, we'll start with our, uh, our question of the morning. Uh, how can I defeat you? That's the question. How, how can I defeat you today, this week? What do I have to do? To uh, kind of ruin your life, maybe erode your faith, stop you dead in your tracks. What do, what do I have to do? Think about it for a second. What do I have to do? How many of you are thinking hard about that? How many of you are thinking that's just a weird question, even for Jordan? What do I have to do to defeat you? Do you know? I'll take answers if you have them. What do I have to do? Yeah, Dave. You have you have to give up? Yeah. So I just have to get you to give up somehow. Yeah. And you know how? What what what's the trick? Wear you down. We're at repetition. Yeah, that's a good one. There's another hand back there, I think, behind John. Yeah. Discouragement? I, I can't hear the first part. Repetitive discouragement it 's the grind, yeah, it 's the grind, what else, yeah, yeah make uh, to make you face backwards it 's a, a a lovely, prosaic way of saying, Oh, the key is in the past, if I get you to think about your past uh, and uh, projecting the past into the future, right, I mean that can be deadly when we start to do that, yeah, yeah, mind ha <laughs> ha put too many good actions in front of you. I can defeat you with opportunity. I can defeat you by crying out in need from too many places. I can defuse you. I can ruin your focus. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. I'm No, oh, distraction. Distraction. Yeah, somebody just just poke him. Just, uh, distraction. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an attention deficit. We only have so much attention in life and you had know, too many things. Meach. If you can convince the other person that they're less powerful than you. So I convince you that you're not not as powerful as I am. It's like, I can do it, but let's face it, you're not me. Something like that? Ooh, that's good. I like that. I use it as devious. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a way of saying comparison, right? Comparison can take your feet out from under you just like that right that's toxic that's deadly i'll take one more come me up. shut you down when you're stepping out in faith so there's a vulnerable moment where you first take the risk for god right And you're kind of you, you've kind of decided to do it but you're not settled into it yet and all i have to do is kind of reach you at that point i can i can ridicule you for instance that's a good one yeah i'm great at that I'm great at defeating. Uh, There's a mirror image question, which is like, you know, what can I do to help you at all of those uh, critical junctures? But we're not asking that today. Um, I think there's something about the life of faith. There's something particularly about the radical kingdom life of faith, right? You're really trying to make your life count. You're really trying to make a difference for Jesus in the world. You're really trying to minister. You're really trying to follow your purpose, Uh, when you do that, you get a lot of psychological warfare. And and most of what you said was psychological, right? The psychological warfare. I didn't specify it as such, but nobody said, oh, you could take away all my food. Nobody said that. Uh, Usually that's not what what, uh, defeats us, not material stuff. But it's like, it's how we feel. I can get you to feel a certain way. And if I can get you to feel a certain way about things, I've got you. If the enemy can make you feel a certain way about things, he's got you if life can defeat you psychologically, uh, then the facts don't really matter so much. And life is just filled with psychological warfare. Life has a way of finding your weak spots, doesn't it? Life has a way of finding your weak spots and just poking at them, testing you right in, in those soft spots. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost a guarantee, and it's, it's worth thinking about it. You have to know what your soft spots are, um, because uh, the enemy does. <laughs> the enemy does. Um, pop quiz number two. You get a bonus question today because you did so well uh, at that one. How many times this week did you think about eternity? How many times this week did you think about eternity? A lot. A lot? Okay, so we have a lot on one side. How many would say uh, zero? Yeah, get some zeros. One or two? I have a theory that we tend to think about eternity in proportion to how much our week sucks. Yes? It's like, amen. Preach it. Witness. I'm awesome. Uh,. If, if you thought a lot about eternity this week, it's, it's probably because things were kind of rough for you or because things have historically been rough uh, for you and you know the value of thinking about eternity. And today we're going to talk about, about keeping the end in mind, You know, keeping eternity in mind and, and how important that is, particularly how important that is in winning at psychological warfare in life, uh, which is a big part of life. We're doing a sermon series on the life of Paul who is kind of an expert in, in pressing on. He was an expert in psychological warfare and, 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 and uh, particularly psychological uh, victory. We're going to read uh, where there's, there's going to be this week and then next week is the last week on uh, the life of Paul. Uh, so we're right, we're right at the end of his life now. And we're going to read today an entire chapter from a letter that he wrote to his protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. It is printed in its entirety in your program. It will be up on the big board. or You can follow along in your own Bibles. Um, so what's going on here as Paul writes this letter to Timothy is that Paul is in prison. Not, not the first time that he's been in prison, uh, though probably the last. He's, he's in prison uh, in, in Rome at this point. Uh, as near as we can tell. And this is, this is his last go. We've been following the story of the book of Acts, how he heads to Jerusalem and gets thrown into prison through long, complicated, super unfair uh, legal proceedings. He... Uh, He ends up being sent to Rome for trial. The trip to Rome is not easy, but finally he gets there. He gets immediately thrown into prison where he will stay the rest of his life until Emperor Nero, that Nero, that crazy Roman Emperor Nero. If you know anything about Roman history, you probably know Nero. He was a psychopath. Uh, Eventually, he would just have Paul's head chopped off, Uh, and and that would be the end. So Paul is in prison here right at the end, and he's writing some letters. He wrote... uh, A lot of his great letters uh, in prison and he's writing some of his last words and he's writing them to um, one of his his, uh, most powerful protégés, Timothy, a guy who started out as a young man in the story of the book of Acts and would eventually become a very seasoned pastor, a leader of very large churches uh, in the first century Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, you, Timothy, keep your head. Keep hold of your mind, literally. Keep your head in all situations, endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul is starting out with, you know, like famous last words. And the first thing Paul says to Timothy is, look, Jesus is coming back. It's all real. So more than anything else, buddy, no matter what the situation is, keep on working. Keep ministering. Stay with your kingdom purpose, no matter what. That's Paul's thesis statement. He goes on, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. (laughs) Wow, my life is already being sacrificed. It's already done, dude. I'm dead. And the time for my departure is near. I know my time on earth is short. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That's a kind of a triumphant statement. I imagine coming from a guy like Paul, it's a meaningful statement. And we've we've seen how the dude has lived. Um, he has fought. And he's raced hard, hasn't he? And now he can see the finish line. I see the finish line. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. It's like I'm... I can taste gold, baby. I'm right there. I can, I can see the finish line. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get that crown. It's all good. It's all good, which is a great way to end a paragraph that started with, I'm a dead man. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica Crescians has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Parenthetical statement. Uh, you may remember from early in the sermon series on the life of Paul that Paul and his best friend Barnabas split up because they had a disagreement about how reliable Mark was. Mark abandoned Paul on Paul's first missionary journey probably because Mark didn't like to hang out with people who weren't Jewish. And that just really upset Paul a great deal. And he's like, well, he can't really be a missionary with me in the Gentile world if he can't stand Gentiles. So, so uh, Mark, no, you can't come with us anymore. Uh, you know, maybe Paul is mellowed. I imagine Mark has grown up quite a bit in the intervening decades. And now Paul is saying, yeah, send me Mark, man. I really value Mark. Uh, He's really helpful to me. Uh, Mark would be the guy who would go to Rome, not only hang out with Paul, but hang out with Peter. And Peter would dictate to Mark the gospel of Mark, which is how we get it. And it may well have come from this invitation that Paul made. Mark was a pretty cool writer, uh, a literate fellow, among other things. End parentheses. Um, I sent... Tychicus to Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. I love this passage because it comes from sweeping statements about eternity to, hey, uh, could you bring me my coat? It's It's kind of chilly. I mean, you guys can relate, right? I'm really cold. Um... Alexander the metal worker did me a a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed uh, our message. Alexander the metal worker, we don't know that whole story. Uh, You know, Evidently, he was a guy that sort of got involved with the faith, got involved with ministry, but then abandoned or betrayed and and corrupted uh, what they were trying to do. And it was especially harmful. I mean, evidently he had, some, he had some negative effect. I mean, he really wounded Paul. Paul doesn't say things like this casually. Timothy knew him too, evidently. He said, yeah, Alexander broke my heart. Alexander destroyed a lot of the good that I was trying to build. And he said, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. There's two ways to read that, which is the Lord will get him. And the other way is the Lord will take care of that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to seek vengeance. Timothy, you don't seek vengeance either. God will sort it out in the end. And, and I tend to read it in, in the second way, you know, which, uh, you know, has the end in mind. You know, I'm not going to judge anybody prematurely. God will judge in the end. We'll see how it turns out for Alexander. But please, please do be careful around him. He's toxic right now. Well, that sort of thing. And my first defense, he means his legal defense in Rome where he was dragged in front of the rulers, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Oh, that must have been great. May it not be held against them. Again, this sort of generous tone. You know, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Last week in our story about the shipwreck, twice we saw the Lord stand next to Paul and give him messages. I don't know what the courtroom was like, but I imagine that Paul sensed the presence of the Lord, or the presence of an angel there. That must have been comforting, given that he was under the threat of death, the sentence of death. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Okay, that's not just a figure of speech, right? Because they would throw Christians into the Colosseum to be killed by wild animals on occasion. So, like, this is where the figure of speech comes from. It's like, yeah, you know, they didn't just throw me to the lions. Instead, I was put into this kind of prison, and I can write letters and stuff like that. So Paul is saying, eh, good news in the midst of bad. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Achilla, uh, two of Paul's partners in ministry that have become great friends. Um, Parenthetical statement. It was really improper. Uh, Priscilla and Achilla were married. Priscilla the woman, Achilla the guy. Very improper to list the woman first in that culture But Paul did it because Priscilla was, was the better leader um, She was the prominent one um, I just say that parenthetically Because Paul is sometimes portrayed in pop culture As a woman hater for some reason It's like, dude, you don't really read what Paul wrote, did you? Paul broke conventions and honored women left and right Wherever he could, end parentheses Greet Priscilla and Achilla and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus' parenthetical statement. I just think that's a profound statement. Trophimus was a companion of Paul. We have seen Paul raise people from the dead, but his buddy got sick, and Paul couldn't do anything about it and had to leave him behind. It's a crazy life, the life of faith, you know? You get inexplicable victories and really frustrating defeats all at the same time close parenthesis. Do your best and get here before winter, he says again. Eubulus greets you. Great baby name, guys. Eubulus. Boy, girl, I think it works either way. <laughs> Eubulus greets you. And so do Pudins and Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters, all the Roman Christians. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. All right, I just I just love that as uh, as final words uh, go. There's this ironic setting. Paul, uh, one of the greatest figures in world history, let alone church history, the greatest missionary and church planner of all time, the guy who wrote like the bulk of the books in the New Testament. I mean, this guy is huge. This guy is huge. There is no figure in the early church bigger than the Apostle Paul, and he's dying alone, abandoned, forgotten impoverished in a prison at the end of his life. And I just think that's just it's just mind blowing. Yeah? That's just mind blowing. His circumstance and his kingdom position entirely discordant. Uh, they do not match. And that that's worth a lot of meditation just by itself. Has he won or has he lost? Now, two thousand years after the fact, we can look back on his life and say, "Oh, he won." I mean, very few individuals in the history of the world that have been as influential as, as as the Apostle Paul. But I wonder if he was sitting there in prison if he felt like he won. You know, he must have he must have been asking the question at least. You know, he must be he must be saying. Uh, you know did did I pull it off, or did I screw up my life? Um, by his tone, he seems to think that he 's done pretty well, which is just striking right that's that 's the scene it 's like his circumstances suck beyond sucking they suck relationally they suck materially he 's going to die soon he knows it. Um, some of his work is being ruined, and he can't do anything about it, <clears throat> you know. But he's like, I'm going to get the crown, baby. <laughs> I can see the finish line. He keeps eternity in mind, is what he does. He keeps the end in mind, and clearly that's Paul's trick, you know. He's not focused on him, on his circumstances. He's focused on staying on point. He's just focused on being obedient to his calling, day in, day out, no matter the circumstances, and boom. That's what the sermon's supposed to be about right there. That's the point. Don't look at your circumstances. Think about eternity, and just do your work obediently every day, and that's the key uh, to to Christian living. And everything else in the passage flows from that. You know, Paul's edgy, but he's not holding grudges. He's forgiving people uh, that have hurt him. And he has their end in mind as well. It's like, well, I'm not going to judge him. Everybody has an end. Everybody gets judged at the end. Uh, So that's not for me to say. And he has some freedom about that. Of course, twice he encourages Timothy to come quickly, and I really love the human underside of the story. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, sure, I'm in prison. I'm going to die pretty soon. I'm going to be sacrificed, but you know what? Not everything is bleak. I did get to testify in front of the Gentiles, and, and um, you know, some, some people have, have stuck with me, and, and I encourage you to follow through on your calling. It, it, it's going to be worth it, but, dude, I'm a little bit lonely. Be honest with you. Uh, It would be great if you come quickly. It would be great if you come before winter, he says again at the end. Uh, I made a voyage in winter recently. It was bumpy. You know, get here quickly. Uh, And if you could like bring my coat because I'm too poor to buy another one. and, uh, And it's a little chilly and I'm not as young as I used to be. And bring those parchments and my writing materials because, you know, again... I don't really have the funds to buy paper and stuff, and and I would love to, you know, have a little bit to read and stuff like that. You know, he's he's honest about his deprived circumstances. He's signaling some relational need, uh, but his tone uh, is just is just awesome. awesome. You know, he's he's a little bit pathetic, uh, but a lot profound, and. I just think that's that's beautiful. Um, practically, what I like about this passage is all the psychological warfare it shows. And think of all the ways that Paul could get defeated in the midst of this. You know, poverty. Well, that hurts the body, but it hurts the minds and the spirit too, doesn't it? It's got great warfare there. I don't know if you've ever been in a materially deprived state for a long period of time. It just wears you out. It's it's the fatigue that really does it. Couple that with the fact that Paul's in prison. You know, he doesn't have freedom. He can't go anywhere. Couple that with the fact that some of his friends have abandoned him when time got tough. I mean, relational warfare is, is just... Deadly to a lot of people, because we look to people for support and encouragement, and when those people signal to us, You know what you're not worth it. That can be extraordinarily uh, extraordinarily hurtful um, when Paul needed people in court, nobody showed up. they were all scared of being associated with him, uh, happened to Jesus once, happened to Paul uh, toward the end. All the different forms of psychological warfare. Lies being spread around him. We know Paul was a great figure, but but the stuff weighing on him was, was fantastic. Paul had the end in mind. Uh, when I read this, I, uh, I borrow from some of Paul's own imagery, and I think about the end of, uh, of a race. Um, I spend uh, some of my uh, free time uh, as a... Uh, Cross country and, and, and track coach, and I love the cross country races because uh, you really get to see athletes heart when they run them they 're about a little over three miles long, most of them over hills and stuff like that and and when the athletes get to the finish line, they 're all exhausted. In fact, the ones that have done best often hurt the most because they 've given it their all, right they've endured more pain than the other athletes, run faster and longer as a result. You know, and there's that moment, uh, all races have a home stretch, where you know the athlete is just in incredible pain, but then they see the finish line. And somehow that moment, right? even though they're in excruciating pain, when they see the finish line, they're always able to give just a little bit more. Right? Something happens at that moment where it's like, well, it's just pain. You know, when, you, when you're in the middle of the race and you're hurt, then the psychological warfare is different. It's like, how long can I keep this up? You know, at a certain part of the race, you just have to live in the moment and not think about the next 100 meters. And then in the final 100 meters, well, then you can think about the future. Uh, they keep the end in mind. Um, that's, that's what they're doing. Um, Paul's hurting but he's choosing to take it as a signal that he's run the race appropriately. Yeah, man, I've really given him my all. I fought well. I ran the race as though I might win. I can see the finish line. I think I'm going to meddle. Um, keeping the end in mind. For him, the victory seemed to stay on target. Remember that Paul's call was in Jesus said of him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my, for my name. It's like, you're gonna to have to run till it hurts, Paul. And and he did, and he's remembered that. Clearly, you can't uh, judge victory by circumstance uh, in the kingdom. Uh, Paul's circumstances suck, uh, but he is perceiving his victory. Jesus explained things the same way. He said, "Oh, look in the kingdom of God, the least is the greatest." You know, like you look at somebody and you think, man, God must really despise that person. Ah, 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 that's the person that's going to be ahead of you in line in heaven. That was Jesus' teaching. And, uh, and Paul's life sort of bears it out. At the end, as great as the guy was, as great as the guy was, I think if you had seen him in prison, you might have thought, poor fellow. Poor fellow, you know, what, what, a, what a reject. So that's the truth. I mean, the kingdom truth is that circumstance is just circumstantial. That's the kingdom truth, right? Now, we kind of knew that truth, right? We kind of knew not, not to look at circumstance. The question for me is not about the truth. It's about the technique. It's like, well, how do I pull it off, though? I mean, I know that's true, but living it out and, and keeping my faith and my sense of victory in, in hard circumstances, uh, that, that's, that's difficult. And it's challenging for me. It has been challenging for me over the years to, like, preach this in a way that's effective because if I say, oh, you know, circumstances are hard. You have to expect it. What I can do there is I can subtly condition people to expect disappointment out of the kingdom of God. And that can be detrimental to people, right? I can create a bunch of, of uh, pessimists and cynics. And I tend to be rather pessimistic and cynical. So that's, that's, that's very dangerous for me. I, I don't want to train people to be disappointed. And the fact was, and we've discussed this, that Paul had tremendous hits and some tremendous misses, right? I mean, the, the truth is not that you should expect disappointment. The truth is that you should probably expect a variety of outcomes in the kingdom of God. If you're living by faith and running really hard, I mean, some things will go miraculously well. And some things will go inexplicably terrible. That's, that's just the nature of it, you know. So, you have to be open. You have to have strong faith. And you have to have strong faith uh, that uh, accommodates, you know, disappointment, but is not overly influenced um, by it. Circumstance is just circumstance. Uh, Keep running. Uh, So be careful about that. I'm still not very good at that. Don't expect disappointment. Just don't pay it much mind when it happens. But mostly today I wanted to talk about psychological warfare. So we return to our original question. What will stop you? What will stop you in life? What will stop you from living the life that you feel called to live? Uh, Here are some things that might stop you. Uh, Usually, the thing that stops people is drift. Is drift. Is just delay and vagueness and distraction. What stops most, most Christians in life from living a really stellar Christian life isn't some big trauma, some big showstopper, usually what it is is just kind of yeah, lack of follow-through, drift. Chaos doesn't defeat you all at once. Chaos defeats you an inch at a time. Usually it's not that we decide to abandon faith. It's just that on Monday morning we don't decide to follow faith. That's what I mean by drift. Usually that's the thing that's going to defeat us. That's what my experience uh, uh, teaches us. Uh, The second thing that might defeat you is disappointment. Disappointment is devastating, and it comes in various forms. You could have one big disappointing event or a few disappointing events that you never recover from. That can do it. Most of the time, the disappointments that hurt us most are relational. We get stung relationally. Somebody breaks up with us, somebody lets us down, somebody abandons us, and it just turns us bitter. Uh, That takes a ton of people out. I've been at this a long time, and that's right there at the top of my list. Relational disappointment wipes out uh, faith uh, like nothing else. Uh, Another sort of disappointment that wipes out a lot of people is wrong expectations about life. Uh, People say, essentially, I thought my life was going to be like this, but instead it's turned out like this. I quit. And even if they don't say, I quit, they quit. They quit. They quit. Uh, wrong expectations, and there's a scandal, there's an offense that comes when God doesn't give you the life that you expected God to give you, and a lot of Christians never really recover from that, and they turn into kind of just drifty Christians instead of purpose-focused Christians. It can be the world that defeats you, as Paul says about Demas. He said, oh yeah, you know, the world got him. Uh, in other words, you know, sin can can get you, or or the attractions of the world, non-kingdom things can seem shinier than kingdom things, you know. Uh, A lot of times, uh, non-kingdom things are are more fun, you know, and you can just kind of, you can waste your time uh, doing stuff that's worldly, or you can get involved in sinful temptations that can corrupt you really, really fast. And all of these sorts of things work because we can justify them to ourselves. We're really good justifiers. Usually we say something like, well, I haven't really quit, it's just that. And then fill in the blank with whatever you want. That's how justification works. Paul's life teaches us that nothing has to stop us, though, as he wrote to, to the Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He's faithful and provides provide you with a way out. None of these things have to defeat you. Nothing has to. But a lot of these things can. So here's my practical advice for the day and we'll end for this. Unless you want to sit here for another 30 minutes and lose four pounds. I'm open. I just want to uh, give you... Just, you know, life life wisdom. You know, just kind of from me to you, and it comes out of my meditation on passages like this and what they have meant for my life. Um, here's my, uh, my first piece of practical advice. When you find yourself in dubious, dark circumstances, number one, seek help, but not sympathy. Um, there are complicated reasons why I express it like that, but I just think that's... That's good advice. Seek help, but not t- sympathy. Paul sought help from Timothy, right, in the midst of his situation. He struck a tone of faith, but then he asked for help. You know, actually, Tim, I could use some company. If you could get here quickly, that would be really great. I could use, you know, a little material comfort. If you were able to pick up a few things along the way, that would be fantastic. But he never, he never sought sympathy, right? He wasn't like, things suck for me so much, that, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it unless, you know, you change my circumstances or God changes my circumstances or, or something like that. He said, well, you can help me out. You can help me endure if you're able. But he never, he never took a, like a pathetic tone. Do you get what I mean by seek help but not sympathy? Uh, there's something that happens there that is really deadly to faith when we identify with our suffering more than, than with victory. Um, so you want to say things like, hey, you know, this, this bad thing happened to me or these, these bad things are happening to me right now. I'm trying to find my way through it. Here's something you could do for me right now. And that has a different tone than things suck. Pray, you know. You have to find the core of faith in the midst of, of the circumstance. I, I fail at that a lot, you know. I'm one to say oh, things suck. <clears throat> God's supposed to do something, <laughs> and I just sort of lay a temptation to bitterness out there on my bad days. <clears throat> Instead, I wanna, I wanna say, um, I'm finding my way through a tough time. Um, hey, could you? Uh, Hang out with me for a while. This is a tough afternoon or something like that. That's a different tone. One of the things that means for me is that I don't ask for prayer unless I ask for prayer for something really specific. I don't say, my life sucks. Pray for me. Instead, I say, hey, could you pray that my mind clears this week because I'm not, I'm not doing so well uh, in my thought life? Or <clears throat> you could pray that I act in great faith because... Uh, I feel like I'm acting out of fear. Or I might say, oh, could you pray that I have favor in this conversation, this difficult conversation that's coming up? You know, I try to be specific like that because it focuses me on on victory, on breakthrough, instead of focusing me on circumstance. And circumstances are just circumstantial. Are you feeling me? Are you getting the point? All right. Uh, practical advice uh, number two uh, pray often that you make it to the end. Now, that's an innocuous piece of advice. Like, well, that doesn't sound very insightful at all. Uh, how many of you pray regularly? Yeah? I try to pray daily. I just encourage you to make it part of your daily prayer. Uh, oh, Lord, I pray uh, that I could finish this well. Uh, I've, I'm older than most of you, you know, my end is closer. Um, but I've started incorporating that into my regular prayers because uh, it is a, it's an anchor for my spirit to think, to live with the end in mind it's like, I want to finish well and what that does is it takes my focus off of my circumstances and instead puts it on, well, my eternal circumstances Right? I'm thinking about the finish line it's like, you know what? I'm going to finish this race. I know I can do it. I know I can do it. In fact, I can finish it well. I know that God doesn't put anything in my life that I cannot escape. I know that God doesn't give me anything that I cannot withstand. Now, I don't feel like I can withstand it right now. Every muscle in my body is screaming in pain. My lungs feel like they're about to burst if I, if I keep running. Oh, God, help me to finish well. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll just pray that so that I I think about the miracle of the finish, about how it's going to feel uh, to get to the finish line and know that I never stopped, uh, that I never gave up. And, and I try to pray that daily. I also pray about my circumstances daily. It's like, oh, God, you know, this thing sucks. Could you help me with it? Sure, uh, I will do that. But never without praying about the end at the same time. And I feel like that's very nourishing to my soul. Do you get it? That's all I got to say. Um, I don't know how things are lining up for you right now. I don't, I mean, I'm pretty sure that nobody in here is currently imprisoned. Um, There are good people around you. Uh, You have fellowship at your disposal. So, you know, Certainly, in some major ways, uh, your life is not as desperate as Paul's was. But it's doubtless that a lot of people in here feel desperate. And uh, in those desperate moments, you have the opportunity to achieve uh, eternal glory. These are the things that really set us free in, in the walk of faith Father God, I pray that you would put uh, the finish in mind for those of us who are struggling to keep running. I pray that nothing would stop us, that none of us would give in to the psychological warfare. I pray that we wouldn't give in to just the the drift and the diffusion and the fog of life I pray as well Lord that we wouldn't give in to disappointment because it's a long race as Paul said to the Galatians if you keep doing good work you will reap a harvest in due time just don't give up I pray, Lord, that uh, we wouldn't be stopped by wrong expectations, that, that the scandal of an unexpected sort of life would not derail us. And I pray, Lord, that the world wouldn't get us, that you would arrest our attention right now and, and stop um, our pursuit of uh, sinful comfort or false worldly excitement. I pray, Lord, that we would be a help to one another and that you would give us here a a culture of empowerment and not just sympathy. In Jesus' name, amen.